Hello and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to Berkeley graduate student research. My name is Stephanie Gerson and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to Christian Broderick, a PhD student in the Department of Earth and Planetary Science. So welcome, Christian. Thank you. And we're going to be talking about stream meandering and stream restoration. So first, can you briefly introduce your work? My research is looking at what are the conditions necessary to create and maintain meandering gravel bed rivers. And the reason we're interested in this question is because rivers are currently being restored to try and improve aquatic habitat. Often these rivers, especially gravel bed rivers, are restored as meandering systems. So what, we, what we're doing is we're trying to use experiments to figure out the, the key components or the ingredients that are necessary to have a river that meanders across its floodplain and a gravel bed. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit. Uh, what caused streams to change in the first place, and in what ways have they changed? Streams, streams have been changed by a lot of things. Uh, the most obvious example is dams, which have severely altered the amount of water and sediment that goes downstream. They trap all the sediment behind them, and they often reduce the high flows that occur. So you've got less sediment moving through and less ability for it to move because you have less discharge. The other thing that's severely impacted streams is land use. Things like the mining in the 19th century had a severe impact on how much sediment was in the rivers. Uh, logging has an effect on both flow and sediment. Um, and then we've also taken a lot of rivers and put levees and revetment and riprap along the banks so they don't migrate anymore. Uh-huh. Okay, and then when did the movement towards stream restoration begin and what inspired it? I think it was inspired by a general recognition that things were really bad in rivers and mm -hmm. that a lot of rivers um, were losing their populations of endangered species like salmon. And I think it was really, in the West Coast at least, it was the salmon issue that really pushed stream restoration. And it probably began sometime in the 70s or 80s, probably more in the 80s, but um, it really took off in the mid-90s yeah. and has been growing exponentially since then. And you say that a billion dollars per year is spent in the U.S. to restore streams and improve aquatic habitat. So where does that money come from and what is it being spent on specifically? So the money generally comes from uh, federal agencies. They have a lot of money um, and they're often involved in water policy in some way. Um, and also from uh, every 30 to 50 years, uh, dams need to be relicensed and as a part of that relicensing, there's often restoration now that gets included in what they have to do. Um, and what it's spent on really varies uh, from anything from just putting up fences around rivers to keep cattle out, to buying land, which is what the Nature Conservancy is doing a lot of in the Sacramento Valley, to actively changing what streams look like and getting in there with bulldozers and excavators and reconfiguring what the channel looks like and what the shape of it is. As far as the streams that you research, what, what types of streams are you talking about? Um, the types of streams I'm researching uh, are mostly lowland rivers. So, so in California, they would be rivers that come into valleys, not that aren't constrained by bedrock, that, are, that have floodplains and are moving back and forth. Okay. And actually, because that's kind of a beautiful thing, can you explain what that means? that a stream moves back and forth across its floodplain? Well, one of the cool things about rivers is that they're sort of the author of their 
of their environment. And one of the things that rivers do is they make their own valleys, and they make it by meandering back and forth across their valleys. So if you're a bird watching, you know, looking down on a stream over a long, long course of time, you're a very long-living bird, then you would see it move across its floodplain. I mean, how wide is the... How, how far can it move? Uh, well, it depends. Or the ones that you work with? Well, the, the, it depends on the width of the valley. Um, the Central Valley is pretty wide, and the Sacramento River, um, is, which is probably a couple hundred meters wide in places, the valley is uh, kilometers wide, so they can move back and forth. Wow, but, but at what time frame are we talking about? Well, it depends on the river again. Um, some rivers it takes thousands and thousands of years, and yeah. some less. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so I understand that stream restoration increasingly involves rebuilding streams so that floodplains are inundated during high flows and Mm -hmm. so that sediment transport frequency is increased. So if you were a fish, why would you want floodplains inundated during high flows and higher sediment transport frequency? Well, fish go on floodplains. In fact, uh, during high flows, the floodplains are where fish hang out because if they were in the main channel, they'd get blasted out and blown downstream. Mm -hmm. So the floodplain habitat ends up being really important for fish. And if I'm a fish, I eat things, and those things sometimes fall off trees. So having a riparian system is really important. And... You What's riparian? Bugs. Riparian, sorry. You gotta explain your terms here. Yeah, uh, I remember the first time someone said riparian to me when I was in a geology class, and it took me three days to figure out what they meant. Um, and it's pretty simple. And look at me now. Yeah, um, just throwing it around. Riparian, riparian. Uh, I would say that that riparian just means streamside. Uh, riparian's vegetation is vegetation that's next to a river. So, if you're um, a fish, those the vegetation next to the river is really important. It provides shade, which keeps so the water cool. But you are a cool. fish. You should speak oh. in first person. As a fish. <laughs> yes. Um, I think it's really important to have trees because they provide shade. Um, they roughen the banks so I can hide in the banks. And then the floodplain habitat is quite important during the high flows because you can imagine a couple-inch-long fish doesn't stand much of a chance during a flood. So mm-hmm. they tend to go up onto the floodplains and hide out there. And in larger river systems, the floodplains are where all the action is. The the sediment. The sediment. So what happens to the sediment is that the bed coarsens through time as the finer particles are winnowed away because there's there's it's not being transported as frequently mm-hmm. because there's fewer high flows. There's also less sediment supply to replenish the particles that are moved away. So as the bed coarsens, it becomes harder and harder to move, which is compounded by the lower flows. It turns out that a lot of aquatic organisms live around rocks in the bed, and a lot of bugs and things that fish eat are dependent on that. And then the other factor is that the uh, fish, especially salmonids, spawn in gravel beds, and if the particles are too coarse and too hard to move, they can't spawn any longer. Mm. Okay, so what happened when the dam was built? Well, um, to you, what happened to me... What happened to me is that all of a sudden the frequency of high flows is less. And so I can't get up onto the floodplain. The channel has started to incise a little bit. Um, so that means that the banks, the difference between the bottom of the bed and the top of the banks is higher. So it takes more flow to get flood on, water onto the floodplain. So the channel can contain, when, it, when the dam does spill, the channel can contain a higher flow. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden I'm, I'm in this bowling alley yeah. uh, with 
bowling balls running at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor fish. Poor fish. Um, so if you're going to, and you can be a fish for the rest of the interview if you want. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> if you're going to restore a stream, there are obviously many different design questions, one of them being the size and the shape of the stream, mm-hmm. which you refer to as the morphology of the stream. But uh, actually, before we get into that, what other what other design questions might there be if you're going to restore a stream? What other design questions might there be? Yeah, what what, what types of vegetation you could plant? Oh, okay. Maybe. So when you're restoring... I mean, there's obviously a, st- a lot of variables. Yeah. So when you're restoring a stream, you have to take a lot of things into account. Yeah. Um, one and and you have to remember that rivers are an ecosystem where a lot of things interact, uh, and a lot of those interactions we don't really understand all that well. So I would say that that you definitely need to take into account the vegetation, and often um, getting native vegetation to grow along streams again is one of the primary objectives of restoration, or well, the secondary objective after having more fish, like me. And the um, <laughs> so you need to take that into account. You also need to take into account where you are what the geology and topography is like around you, um, what the what the hydrology is like, what, so what the patterns of high flows are like, uh, what the sediment supply is like, where is the sources of sediment. Um, sometimes you can be down below a dam, but because you have tributaries that are bringing in sediment and because of land use, they might be bringing in more than they had before. You need to... Um, I just lost my train of thought thinking about breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Got to remember to breathe when you're a fish, I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> uh, Use your gills. So why don't we return to stream morphology? What different types of morphologies are there? Well, streams can have a lot of different forms. Um, you, if you And they change from as you go from the headwaters out to the ocean. So in the headwaters, you tend to have canyon streams. And then as you go downstream, you tend to get gravel bed rivers that tend to be braided. Mm-hmm. And that braided, a braided river tends to have a lot of different paths the water can flow down. There's, if you were to walk across the river, you would go up and down and up and down and up and down as you go across different bars. You can also get below braided rivers, you can get um, an island bar morphology where you've got islands in the middle of your channel that are usually vegetated. And then below that, you get to meandering rivers and... Finally, you get to a sort of anastomosing or deltaic systems where you've got lots of channel paths and the rivers might use all of them or switch between different ones. Okay, and even if you've chosen a meandering morphology, there are still a lot of variables to think about, right? Where are you going to make the meanders? How big are they going to be, etc.? But you take the approach of trying to understand what conditions promote meandering in the first place. So can you talk a little bit about that? One of the questions that's been raised by stream restoration, something that people have been wondering for a long time, is where would you expect to find meandering in braided streams? And the simplest division would be that you would expect gravel bed rivers to be braided and sand bed rivers to be meandering. Um, because the sand bed rivers have... Low, they tend to be at lower slopes, which promotes meandering. But there are gravel bed meandering rivers. They're, um, they're located in different, all over the world. Um, the most probably well-known local example is the upper Sacramento near Chico is a gravel bed meandering river. So our question was, where do they, where do they occur? And um, what things do these rivers have in common that allows them to be meandering where you would otherwise expect them to be braided? 
And so uh, through delving in the literature, uh, we found that uh, one common theme is bank strength. So they have something to provide strength to the banks. And that's typically either vegetation or cohesive material. Uh, cohesive material is like, we usually think in gravel bed rivers, it's usually silt, but it's like a clay that's a little bit sticky when it gets wet. So it has some strength to it. And other characteristics are, are that they're close to the transition between a gravel and sand bed. Mm-hmm. Um, a kind of neat part about rivers is that the transition from gravel to sand is very rapid. And so the, these tend to be on the lower edge of the gravel bed rivers. Other characteristics are they tend to be in either humid places, like England has. The British Islands have gravel bed meandering rivers like there's no tomorrow. They're everywhere. In the west, uh, which is definitely not a humid area, they tend to be in places dominated by snowmelt hydrographs, um, like the Sacramento River. Um, and they're also very common in smaller meadowy streams, where, which have low slopes. And mm-hmm. But the reason that you're interested in looking at the conditions is because those are the conditions that you're trying to create to restore a stream? Ah, uh, yes. Um, so yes. the reason we're interested in is because um, in the... Stream restoration, they often create these gravel bed meandering rivers, and that's because they have a diversity of habitats. They've got deep areas and shallow areas, places for fish to hide out and to spawn. Um, but the, the, a lot of these, there have been a lot of projects that have been constructed that haven't worked. They've ended up becoming braided systems. Mm. And as we're building rivers faster than, than we're monitoring them, or as we're restoring them faster than we're monitoring them, the we're not really learning what's working and what's not working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the another problem that Matt Kondoff on campus raises is that we never monitor them anyway, so we don't really know if they're working or not. So we're spending a millions, billion well, a billion dollars yeah. in these reconstruction projects. We're probably spending millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Each one, uh, I think the median cost of a reconstruction project is over $100,000. And in each one, we really don't know what we need to do. And and because we're not checking whether or not they work, uh, the mistakes of the past can be repeated. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I mean, there's something wasteful about that. And it's also not good publicity to have, you know, say, hey, we're going to restore these streams and spend tax, tax dollars on it and then for them to fail. That's true. So for those of you who are just joining us, I'm talking to Christian Broderick about stream meandering and restoration. Okay, so the way that you try to understand what conditions promote meandering is by doing actual experiments, which you referred to a little bit, but can you describe uh, in, in a little more detail what kinds of experiments you do? Yeah, uh, so I do um, uh, what we call flume experiments, which are experiments in, in I have a 6-meter by 17-meter sandbox, which is at the Richmond Field Station, which you've never, if you've never been there, is a lovely place. Uh, right on the bay. I have been there. Uh, it is a lovely place. So what I do in these experiments is I can control how much water and sediment goes in. And I start with an initial channel that has one bend in it and then is otherwise straight. And then I generate meanders. And, how? Uh, by turning the water on. Oh. I turn on the water and the sediment and let the channel build meanders. Oh. The key components that we do in these experiments are that we add bank strength using alfalfa sprouts. And alfalfa sprouts are cool because they grow pretty quickly. It takes about a week for them to go from seed to something that can provide bank strength. And then we also add fine sediment. Um, we use a lightweight plastic as a model sand. Does sand scale? 
it's difficult to scale sand because an odd thing happens in with sediment, which is that if you get down below particle sizes less than sand, they actually become harder to move as they get smaller because there's less particle exposed to the flow. So we use these this lightweight plastic as a model sand. Uh-huh. And you mentioned that the only experiment that has been successful besides the ones that you're doing is one that someone did in a garage? Yeah, in the mid to late 90s, a guy named Charles Smith, who was a software engineer, uh, in his garage... In, in his spare time. In his garage, in his garage instead garage of developing in San, software. In he San Jose, um, he, was, he used a bunch of uh, cohesive, cohesive materials. Uh, I think he used kaolinite clay and uh, diatomaceous earth. And he made, was able to make meandering streams. And uh, until those experiments, people had sort of given up on our ability to make them in labs. Huh. And, and you're the only people you know besides him that have been successful doing this? Well, there have been some other people who've, been, um, who've gotten awfully close. Uh-huh. Um, How long does it have to survive for it to be considered a success? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it seems like a lot of people are able, and what we were able to do in our preliminary experiments, is you're able to generate some initial curvature, but eventually the channel will straighten. And once it, then once it straightens, you're not able to regenerate it. So um, we think that you need to get past that point of it straightening and then regenerating curves. Ah. And channels straighten by what's called cutoffs, which is when a, a bend uh, essentially gets cut off as the river shortens its course through the back of the bend. And so... What we would like to see our experiments do is cut off and then regenerate curvature again. And our experiments have done have been maintained a meandering morphology for something like 138 hours of high flows. Which mm. scale- congratulations, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's two years of my life, which scaled to the field is How many is, hours? is something like many years of high flows, like five to ten. Uh, and so, are these are these types of experiments widely done and just not usually successful, or are they not very widely done because people are running simulations or using other methodologies? Um, I would say that they're not very widely done, partially because there aren't a lot of places that can do them. Yeah. Um, there are The places like the Richmond Field Station, yeah. where you have that sort of space and big pumps and people who know how to fix them, yeah. are pretty rare. Um, I don't see uh, those huge sandboxes all over the place. No, unfortunately, yeah. don't see huge sandboxes all oh. over the place. And when you do see them, there are kids with pails <gasps> Or cats, um, cats and so, um, but and people fish are have, scared of cats. P- fish are scared of cats, rightfully so. <laughs> meow, they don't have <laughs> salmon flavored meow mix for nothing. Um, okay. So, so stream. So I think people are using. Uh oh. No, it's okay. <laughs> Keep going. So I think uh, people have historically approached the questions of meandering from either numerical models or from doing field studies. And field studies have the advantage of you're actually out in the field measuring things in in a real scale that they actually happen at. But getting the timing right so that you're there during floods is really difficult, and it can be difficult to make measurements in floods. And on your website, there is a time-lapse video where you can actually see a stream with one initial meander kind of create meanders through time. That's right. Yeah. So is that the, the 137 hours? Yeah, I think on the website right now, it's it's the first 60-something hours of the experiment. And um, since you've reminded me that I haven't updated my website since the fall, I'll probably go and add the rest oh, of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what did you learn about the conditions conducive to meandering from this experiment? 
So we learned a couple things. The first was that that as people had suspected that you need bank strength mm-hmm. um, and that um, the alfalfa sprouts worked for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not clear to me how the sprouts scale to the field because there are some morphological difference between sprouts and trees. Yeah. Um, but that means that vegetation might be really important. The second thing we learned was that you need fine sediment. You need sand. And in stream restoration, the sand is often seen as poison because sand can infiltrate into the bed and make it more difficult for fish to spawn. But one of the cool things about meanders and one of the reasons that people build meandering streams is because meandering rivers, because they bend, sort their sediment. So you tend to get the coarse material in one place and the finer material in another. Mm-hmm. And we found that in order to, to keep that meandering, you need that fine sediment, which then promotes the growth of more vegetation. And are these things that you learned, were they things that you didn't know before? Did uh, you learn anything that you didn't know before about the well, conditions that promote things, meandering? Yeah, so we've... we've um, I think mostly what they do is they they verified what people had suspected and not quantified before. Um, the the fine sediment thing hadn't really been talked about by uh-huh. people before, um, and we found that without it we had just had real problems. The other thing we learned was that we did a couple of tests with real high flows where we had our floods go well oh. over bank, um, not to the level of what's happening right now in the Midwest, but they were high, much higher flows than the the f- typical floods we ran. And during those high flows, the channel just widened, which is not good for meandering because wider channels tend to be braided. So it's it seems to indicate that that uh, you need to have flows that aren't don't get that high, and so that's why meandering channels may be more common in wider valleys. And it also might be why they you don't see a lot of meandering rivers in flashy systems. Okay, so you're saying that if these conditions are satisfied, right, bank strength from vegetation fine sediment and flows that are not so high, they create conditions conducive to stream meandering, at least to a degree of certainty, to a degree yeah, of certainty. Yeah, so, so, so um, where we're at with the study right now is that we, we've, we've shown that we can create these meanders with these ingredients. Uh-huh. And the next steps are to try and take one or two of those ingredients and say, so uh, how much, what's the critical point yeah, and what's the how threshold? much of what, what thing is important. And so yeah. the, the thing we're tackling next is the importance of sediment supply. Okay. People have seen, noticed anecdotally that in places where you get high sediment supply, the meanders tend to migrate faster, which is uh, cool. Yeah, actually, because this is something I'm kind of fascinated by. Can you talk a little bit about what hungry water is uh, <laughs> and what it does? So uh, the the hungry hungry water is a concept that if you have a lot of water and not a lot of sediment, that the channel will erode, that the channel will change its slope, will adjust its slope, uh, either lower its slope, which can be hard to do um, over long areas, or it will just incise into its channel. And essentially, what you're doing is that you think of sediment and water as being ba- in balance in a natural system over a, a longer time scale. But hunger, hungry water means that there is more water than there is mm-hmm. sediment, and so yeah. they're out of balance. So hungry water makes fish hungry, too. It can make for some hungry fish, yeah. yeah. The, the water and the fish are in line that way. Yeah. Okay, so we will be right back. On next week's show, I will be talking to Jason Blalick from the School of Journalism about his documentary called My Brother the Christian which is about spending a week in Florida with his Christian family. So please join me for The Graduates. 
every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on Calyx. Welcome back. Today I'm talking to Christian Broderick from Earth and Planetary Science about stream meandering and restoration. So you're trying to restore streams to bring back their natural behavior. Uh, and I assume this is behavior f- from right before the dam was built or, <laughs> or, or when, natural behavior when? Well, I think stream restoration, although people say that what they want to do is bring back stream behavior from before the dams, in many cases we don't know what that behavior was. And also um, in many cases we can't get it back because there just isn't the water and sediment to do it. So I think a more reasonable goal is to try and restore streams so that they act more like a natural ecosystem and, and at least behave in ways similar to what the way they did before. Okay, but is this a situation in which there are many solutions to the same problem? I mean, how wide can the window be for, you know, what will... For where, what can meander? And yeah, what can meander or what can provide habitat? Well, the wide for what can provide... Ha- the window for what can provide habitat is quite wide, I think. Uh-huh. Um, I think people are probably overly committed to meandering rivers Uh and stream restoration. Uh And part of what our research, I think, is going to show is that you can't have a meandering river wherever you want. I think it shows that already. And so I think that other rivers... What's this obsession with meandering rivers, I wonder? Well, there's there's some people whose theories are people that... People are obsessed with meandering rivers because that's what they think a river should look like. Ah, okay. And so when you go out and you see a beautiful river that's got floodplains and nice vegetation next to it and deep pools that you can swim in and bars you can skip rocks off of, that's what a river should look like. Um, but also the braided rivers, too, and especially the island bar channels can provide a lot of habitat. Braided rivers are somewhat problematic because they don't have deep pools, typically, where fish can hang out and hide. Mm-hmm. You refer to transitions between meandering and braided streams. And I understand that these transitions occur both in space. Mm-hmm. And it goes through different morphologies as it goes from its headwaters out to the ocean and uh, also through time. The, yeah. So even if, uh, even if we restore streams to some kind of morphology that's not meandering, is it possible that it will become meandering at some point or can you can you can you restore it in such a way that it will lead to it uh, in theory you could probably do that I don't know that anyone's demonstrated that you can do that um, but you could certainly restore streams um, I mean part of some of what people do in stream restoration is just sort of buy land on each side of the river and let the river move around and do what it wants mm-hmm. and um, that certainly provides habitat and value and what kinds of time frames are we looking at? Usually people will design it to try and withstand a five-year flood because that's just something that we can imagine and it's got a relatively high likelihood of happening in the near future. And since you mentioned a lack of monitoring, can you give a general sense of whether you think this $1 billion is being spent successfully? Do you think it should be spent differently? Well, I definitely feel like more, more of it should be spent on monitoring and it's not clear to me that we know how successful it's been. It's mm. been... Uh, so much of the because it's growing exponentially, uh, we ha- we a lot of the rivers that we've restored haven't really been tested yet. So I don't know that what percentage of the streams are being restored in a proper way. We're just not monitoring it. People tend to want to use all the money they can to try and make something better, rather than to try and help out another project somewhere else which might use the same design. Mm-hmm. The thing about restoration is that 
that it's hard to define what what constitutes stream restoration. It ranges from things like putting up fences to buying land to buying water to actively changing what the channel looks like and in some places to rebuilding levees. And a lot of people wouldn't think of building levees as as restoring the stream, but if you're changing where they're located or how they're performing, that that can go into the stream restoration and you can then get to a billion dollars quite easily. Ah, uh, so there's <laughs> so the billion dollars that are spent on stream restoration somewhat broadly interpreted. It's pretty broadly interpreted and if you think about um trying to put a value on like the They've recently done some tests in the Grand Canyon where they release these high flows. Um, the value of that water is tremendous. So once you start putting mon- monetary value on water, stream mm. restoration can get quite expensive. And then obviously the largest percentage is spent on research like yours. Actually, yeah. the smallest <laughs> no, percentage, no, unfortunately. No. <laughs> um, the, the, it's, uh, the smallest percentage is on basic research. Uh-huh. The second smallest percentage is probably on monitoring. So uh-huh. ah, okay. The types of things we can learn from are we always get the short shift. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Christian. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And if you'd like to keep up with Christian's work and check out that time-lapse movie, you can visit his website at eps.berkeley.edu slash tilde, X-I-A-N, slash site, slash research, dot HTML. Wow, saying links is so awkward. If you could just click on my voice, that would be infinitely easier. You've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research on KALX Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson, and I'm looking for new producers for the show. So if you're interested, please visit the Facebook page. That's The Graduates CalX in quotes. On Facebook.com, you can download our podcasts from iTunes University and join me next Monday from 12 to 12.30.